This is episode 124 of the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. Welcome to episode 124 of the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today, I have Thomas Lorini on the show, and Thomas is an expert when it comes to distance investing. Thomas is originally Canadian, but he's moved to California, where he is now a citizen, and he is still investing in Ontario, as well as investing and developing in California and investing in other areas in the U.S. Uh, this guy just seems to do it all and do it with ease. And he's an absolute wealth of knowledge. So in today's discussion, we talk about the different markets that he's in, how he manages to uh, to do it all, as well as the developments uh, that he's doing. We really dug into that, specifically in California, and uh, how he looks at it from a profitability standpoint, how he justifies the risk that comes with development, the sunk costs in determining whether or not a development is viable, that you can never get back whether or not you do the project. And uh, sometimes you just have to be willing, if you're going to get into that game, to do that and be willing to lose. Uh, but that's not going to work for everyone. So uh, we talked about the mindset that's needed and uh, and how that works and how he looks at it. So I really think you're going to find that interesting if you've ever thought about development or you are thinking about getting into development. A quick bit of housekeeping. As mentioned on last week's podcast, although I made a mistake, uh, we have Kayla Andrade coming on for a live webinar this Wednesday night. That's Wednesday, June 16th. Kayla is coming on the show and she's going to be talking about Ontario Landlord Tenant Board issues, what's new, what you need to know. And she's also going to be talking about landlording tips and how to find the right tenants, as well as many other things on that topic. Kayla is the founder of Ontario Landlords Watch, and uh, she's highly respected in the community for helping landlords and helping keep that balance of power because we know that Ontario is very tenant friendly. So uh, Kayla's working on the other end to help keep us as landlords protected the best we can be. So Kayla's coming on. She's going to be answering questions. Please make sure that you register right away for this webinar to secure your spot. It'd be really great to have you there. So you can simply use the link in the show notes of this episode, or if you're watching on YouTube, the link will be in the description below. As always, I ask if you wouldn't mind taking a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. It will help more people to find it. And if you're watching on YouTube, please hit the like notification bell and subscription button if you have not already done so that uh, you get notified every time there's a new episode. And it'll also help more people to find the show that way as well. Without further ado, please enjoy episode 124 with Thomas Lorini. Hello and welcome to the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. I have Thomas Lorini on the show. Thomas, are you in California right now? I am Orange yeah, County, California. That sounds nice. The weather uh, weather must be quite nice right now. Yes, the weather is very accommodating. Yeah, can't complain. Although you're about to have June gloom, aren't you? Apparently, yeah. Well, our June gloom is about seventy five degrees, uh, a little overcast, but uh, you know, usually clears up by midday. So, no complaints. Yeah. So, Thomas, you have roots in Ontario, I believe. Is that uh, is that Correct. true? Correct. I was born and raised in Toronto, actually. Okay. And then you moved out that way. How long ago? We moved to California about seven years ago, uh, 2014, I believe. We initially came for six months, give it a shot, see if we liked it. And we're like, yep, yeah. we like it. We're staying. <laughs> Are you American as well as Canadian or is your At wife? this point, I'm a dual citizen. So um, my wife's an American. So initially she uh, sponsored me. Uh, I got my green card. And after living in the U.S. for three years, you have the opportunity to apply for citizenship. And that's what I ended up doing. So I was able to get my U.S. citizenship. 
And, uh, and right now, you know, the kids are born dual automatically. So we all, we're all dual. Okay. That's handy to have. Yeah. Right now I'm exploring the, uh, the investor visa just so that I uh, have the ability to, uh, to move down there if I choose to. And, uh, yeah, that's quite the process. So you're, you're fortunate to have that already. Uh, I'm, I'm thankful. And it's funny. You mentioned that a lot of Canadians have been reaching out to me. How did you move to the U S you know, what's the process? Give me some insight and how do you do it? Uh, and more and more, especially from Toronto, thinking of Florida, you know, it's a few hour flight. Uh, it's convenient. The weather's great. Uh, but, you know, for my situation, it's a little unique. So unless you're single and want to marry an American, that, that could be still an option for you. Um, however, um, yeah, I think, you know, what you mentioned, Andrew, is probably the, the next best step as an investor. Yeah, it's interesting how many people, as you said, are are definitely um interested in moving i've had so many reach out to me there you know for one reason or another but it's mostly related to our government's handling of the current situation and just not wanting to be in canada anymore and which is sad but uh, a lot of people are saying that and uh, i guess that's just a testament to there's a lot of people who don't agree with with the way it's being handled so i like that you know i was just down in florida it's wide open you know everyone you have you, if you're concerned you stay home if you if you feel like you you are ready to engage in life, you do that as well. Right. So, yeah, um, California is getting back there, aren't they? We're we're slowly opening up uh, yeah. over the last month and a half. Uh, gyms are open, restaurants are open. So the only thing remaining is the masks, but things are pretty pretty much back to normal. So really thankful and grateful. And like you mentioned, you know, I've got a lot of family and friends back in in Canada, and it's been challenging, especially in Ontario, for a lot of them. So. It's interesting, interesting, the different, you know, the politics and the different states and provinces, how everything plays a factor. Um, I think, yeah, at this point, what, almost two years into it. So people are just, just frustrated, you know, with these restrictions. Um, but I'm not complaining, you know, in a day, the, the nice weather does help. Yeah, yeah, I definitely uh, wouldn't mind that right now. It's starting to get a little cooler here again. Um, but we, we've had some nice weather yesterday it was golf and it was 33 degrees. So um, Excellent. you know, came home at the right time. I came home uh, around the, uh, well, I guess it was around the 15th and, uh, we've just had, you were gone for quite a while, weren't you? Yeah. Three months. That's a nice trip. Yeah. Sometimes you need to spend some time in an area to get familiar with it and, yeah. you know, kind of figure out where I would like to invest and, and, you know, what I would want to do down there. Cause for me, it was, yep. it was about putting the pieces together as to what was going to fit with my particular skill set that, I thought was profitable and not taking an unnecessary, unnecessary amount of risk, which is, uh, right. you know, that's uh, something I've had to learn from my, pre- my previous mistakes, not to rush that process. Um, but yourself. So, I mean, you're the interesting thing with you and I catch some of your updates is you're investing in Ontario. You're in Windsor. I think you're in London. You're kind of all over the place, but living in California, I think you invest down there. And I know that you've had other investments in other cities Tell me a little bit about that. Sure. I think, uh, you know, I've been investing. I'll start basically when I started, you know, in 04, I bought my first house, basically house hacked. I put a tenant in, in one of the bedrooms, covered my mortgage. Uh, but, you know, fast forward, took about five or six years before I bought my second property. And before moving to the U.S., I only had about what, three, four, prop- four properties at that. One, two, three, four properties at that time. Mm-hmm. So once we, we moved here and I officially, I was, I used to be manufacturing. So I sold the business, transferred, you now moving, living in California. What am I going to do? I ended up getting my real estate license. I like the real estate, you know, I like the idea of, you know, buying more real estate. 
But at that point, I'd created a pretty good network, uh, you know, back in Ontario. Mm-hmm. So I figured, can I continue to do this? And, you know, I soon just, you know, started pushing outside my comfort zone, pushing past some of these limiting, limiting beliefs that, you know, you got to be within driving distance. You got to be able to see the property. Um, you got to be able to, you know, uh, you know, be present physically to be able to get deals, that sort of thing. But it basically, Andrew, I just started making phone calls and doing everything over the phone to internet and just making offers. And things just started to snowball from that point. Um, mm-hmm. I was able to, you know, um, just get some good opportunities by building relationships over the phone. Realtors, property managers, um, those were my my main, you know, go-to individuals. And then once I got a property under contract, you know, getting references for contractors. I had a pretty good team in Hamilton. That's kind of like the first area I was focused in. Um, you know, I still own quite a number of properties in Hamilton. Um, starting to sell a few of them now. But again, all long distance. If you've got if you got a good team in place, people that you can rely and trust, um, you can obviously have them, you know, um, take video calls uh, or, or you know videos for you, and just kind of you know be clear on expectations. You can do a lot, and just kind of went through that process, and end up looking at other markets, and that's how I kind of shifted my focus to Windsor. Never been to Windsor before, even living in Ontario. And, you know, again, making phone calls, contacts, building those, those, those relationships, I was able to find off-market deals and just, you know, start connecting, putting the pieces together. So from that point on, you know, it was like game on, you know, why do I have to only remain in, in one city or one country? And as I started exploring, even in the U.S., started looking at other states, started buying in Ohio, North Carolina, because at that, once you understand that you're not limited um to you know a particular area or a particular market then you know it's just a matter of like implementing the similar systems and for me especially about building the right team the local team and being able to run the analysis you know look at the comps and just go through the normal process most investors go through and then and then it's a matter of just you know purchasing an acquired property and if it's a buy and hold you know renovate it put a tenant in place and away you go property manager if you need and that's it um, and it's become more and more comfortable. You know, California is very similar to Toronto, a high price market. Cash flow is, is very difficult to find. So a lot of investors are already forced to look at a state. And so for myself, I'm like, well, I knew Canada. That's where I was from. So why don't I just continue acquiring properties in Canada? And that's what I kind of did and continue to do. What kind of uh, tax implication do you have uh, having to file in both Canada and the U.S.? Um, I, I have an, a, an idea of how you're going to answer this, but I'd rather let you answer it. You know, how does that look from an investor standpoint? Yeah, it's not that difficult. Ultimately, I use the same accounting firm to file in Canada and U.S. Um, being a non-resident, my properties in Canada, you know, basically, um, they're, they're, it's not active income. So I have a lot of you know depreciation and, and, and expenses to write off. Um, there's certain forms and 216 i won't go too technical into it but there's certain things you could file that you're only claiming the net profit on your rentals and then ultimately it's pretty much a wash so i'm not actually um, you know filing i mean paying any taxes on the properties in canada however being a non-resident there are prepayments that you have to make and you end up getting that back if that makes sense so what we do is every year we kind of 
you know, you, you file you file something where you estimate how much rent net rental income you're going to generate divided by 12. You make those pre-monthly payments. Once you file your tax and they realize, oh, okay, you don't actually owe us tax. Um, so we'll, we'll just credit you refund that amount back, back to me. So that's in Canada and the U S is very similar to like, you know, living in the same country. If you're in Canada, very similar, you have local property. I mean, you have properties that you, um, you file your taxes on and uh, you have same similar, you know, write-offs against it and, uh, mm-hmm. and you file taxes for the country. So um, I think that the confusing part is people think there's double taxation, those kind of things that come into place. It's not necessarily true. Um, I, haven't, I haven't had to file you know, multiple taxes. It can get complicated uh, if you've got partners in place. Um, you may want to consider utilizing different entities as the ownership so in that in the U.S. we have what's called an LLC. You may want to consider holding the properties in the LLC. Um, but there are a lot of factors to consider. So again, I'm not a CPA. You may want to sit down with one who understands both sides of it. But in general, it's not right. rocket science, um, and you don't have to necessarily pay twice. Yeah. I think it's just determining which country is best yeah. to pay it. Uh, you know, I just went through this process filing my taxes right. um, for 2020, and for certain. Um, I have some active income in Canada because I do some wholesaling. So with that, it's all right, are we going to claim on the Canadian U.S., but only one time that you're actually paying tax? Yeah, there's a tax treaty, right? So if you pay tax in one country, then assuming your accountant set this up right, then you shouldn't pay it in the U.S. So I know that was what my accountant explained to me when I first invested in the U.S. He's like, anything you pay there, you're just going to get a credit in Canada for what you've right. paid. So. So you still file the income on the properties in Canada too. And then, you know, regardless of what Canada's tax rate is, they'll just say, okay, you already paid that much. Okay, this is what you owe from here. So at least that's kind of nice. So you don't have to necessarily worry about paying it twice. Um, I'm just going through all that right now in my structure to make sure I get it set up correctly so that I don't have to worry about that. Did you not see the opportunities in the U.S.? Or was it more just that you understood Southwestern Ontario, you've been in this area, you you know how the people are, you know the opportunity, and of course the property values and where they've been headed? No, that's um, a great question, Andrew. I think what happened was once we moved to the U.S., like I was like, I had no credit. You know, moving to the U.S., even though like I had great credit in Canada, even though Equifax, TransUnion, and uh, Experian are here in Canada, I mean, mm-hmm. in the U.S., they just, I was like, I was off the grid. So it took time for me to get integrated into the U.S. system. And ultimately, it took about two years, two tax returns before I could approach a bank to get qualified for a mortgage. And it wasn't necessarily that easy. Like I had to actually go to a bank. Initially, I felt like I was like 16. Here's a thousand bucks. You know, they secure it to a credit card. And then I start generating some credit. And after six months, they're like, all right, here's your thousand bucks back. And then we just start slowly start increasing your limit. And then you get another credit card. So you have to play that game, start building that credit, start getting into the system, into the U.S. system, and slowly start generating a credit score. The higher you get, the more they're going to lend off of you. And then you get a line of credit here. So this, the process here to get a mortgage is pretty much three steps. You know, you need two-year tax returns. Uh, confirm you have income and you have a decent credit score, which is usually about, above 650. Um, so that's pretty much the, the general steps. So initially, the first mm-hmm. two years, I'm like, I can't even buy a house here, you know, rental property or not. Yeah. Um, of course, there's hard money routes. There are other ways to do it. But, you know, I was new to the U.S. I didn't have that deep yeah. of a network. And for me, it just felt comfortable. I'm like, well, 
I've got a portfolio there in uh, in Canada, a lot of good contacts. So why not just continue to do that while I'm waiting here in the U.S. side? So a couple of points on that. And I learned this sort of in my first go around, but there are some, and, and now, um, there are some tricks that you can kind of get around some of that with. So for one, I'm already building my U.S. credit right now because I got an RBC U.S. credit card. So they used my Canadian credit card to qualify me, but it's reporting to the U.S. Credit Bureau. Now, the problem is I don't have a tax identification number yet, so I'd have to actually get one. So if my visa were to be approved when I apply, then they would actually attach a number to that. I'd have like a social security number. And then mm-hmm. I could actually uh, just call the call the credit uh, reporting agencies and say, please link this. This is my my uh, social security. Please match it to my uh, to my existing credit. So in the meantime, I'm still building credit, which is uh, nice. The other thing is you can actually um, you can actually generate um or so you can actually get a mortgage from RBC US and TD US. And I think BMO will, will lend to Canadians based on the Canadian yeah. credit. So there are some work- workarounds, although they're very restrictive in how many properties you can buy. So Correct. I think that's, that's where the real problem is. Because if you have a bunch of properties in Canada, they might say you don't qualify because you have too many properties. That's true too. One other thing I didn't kind of explore was having my wife kind of like co-sign for me mm-hmm. or utilize her credit so we can open an account together. Um, even though we had a joint account, you know, for whatever reason, there's a, there's a way of doing it where her credit, being a U.S. citizen and having a, a, a lengthier term of credit, would be able to boost mine higher and stuff. So if you know someone in the U.S., family member, whatnot, that's another avenue to explore as well. Yeah, to go on the mortgage together. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and it works the same way uh, here in Canada. So I think there's a lot of similarities between how the, the countries operate from a, a mortgaging standpoint. And uh, that's handy to know. So... So really for you, sticking in Canada was about, I'm set up there. I have credit there. I can get mortgages there. You still had your Canadian tax returns. Did they know, like when you were applying, did you disclose I'm no longer a resident of Canada? So it's funny. Um, you know, we moved in September and obviously we filed our taxes in the upcoming year. So I was able to squeeze out two more properties in December of 2014 by getting mm-hmm. Canadian mortgages. But mm-hmm. once we rolled into you know, 2015 at that time in January... It was pretty much cut off, you know, and, you know, I'd start letting everyone know that we were officially non-residents and then, you know, it just kind of raises a bunch of flags and, you know, you start, the system starts updating. And then once yeah. we file our taxes that April, then that was officially like, you know, a non-resident couldn't apply for getting mortgages any longer. And, um, and what I do currently is I just continue to roll some of the mortgages I do have in Canada from that time. Yeah, just so re, that, like to renew. So like you just keep just renewing. to renew. Just pretty, yeah. pretty much push a button, renew a type of thing. So I don't have to get yeah. re you know, apply and mm-hmm. you know, and then do all, all you know a deep dive into you know all, yeah. all my current situation. Yeah, that's the way the renewals seem to go, right? As long as you're paying, they don't seem to to date. I mean, but technically there's no there's nothing to say that they can't call the mortgage uh at the end of the term, right? And that right. could happen to any of us for any reason, really. I mean, they we know that they typically don't, but who knows, yeah. you know, something, something to consider, right? What would you do if, if the bank said that? Well, I had one situation where I had to ref- I want to refi a property because I had a good chunk of capital. It was a lengthy process. Like, I think it took about six months and I ended up getting my parents to uh, come on title of mm-hmm. the property um, as co-borrowers and that ended up working. But it's not something that's really duplicatable 
Um, it just yeah. it was a like I said, lengthy process. And then, additionally, the rate wasn't super, you know, uh, you know, it wasn't that low in comparison to just traditional rates. So mm -hmm. it's something to consider. There's there are, there's always little options here and there, but you have to kind of weigh the pros and the cons if it makes sense. Yeah. Well, similar issues on both sides of the border, right? If you, if you want to be in a Canadian investing in the U.S., you got to consider this. Although I think there's a lot more options for Canadian Canadian investing in the U.S. than vice versa. I think it's a lot, probably a lot harder to, to be an American trying to invest here. Um, you rarely hear Americans investing in Canada. Yeah. Um, but it's funny. And Canadians are the second largest investors in the U.S. after China. But I kind of tell people here locally, I mean, you need to explore Canada. I mean, the exchange rate alone, you're getting a 25% you know, head start against your local competition. So the exchange rate alone is a benefit. Um, but again, you know, if you, have, you have to know what to look for, the markets yeah. and whatnot. But overall, in general, I think Canada is a very stable market. In the States, I find depending on the state, things can be significantly different. Um, and obviously, you know, back in the recession, 08, you know, they had implosion, just kind of like the rules and the way they had things laid out. Mm -hmm. um, but in general, yeah, you don't have too many Canadians. I mean, too many Americans invest in Canada. It's something for them to consider. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely an opportunity there. I've, I've got some Americans that follow me that are interested. They're like, oh, I'd like to get on that. But, you know, here's the problem. You're American. So, you know, it's, it's, there's all this red tape. And then, uh, you know, and most people don't want to deal with it. Right. So it's really got to be worth it. You got to, you got to know that that's, that's a direction you want to go to yeah. set up the structure to, you know, you're, now you're going to have filings and stuff. And I was actually really relieved to get rid of my U S uh, entities. So I didn't have to file a U.S. return anymore when I finally did, but, uh, right back there now. So we'll be back at it, but <laughs> whatever. I mean, this is why you have good accountants. So you don't need to worry about it. Exactly. Um, so yeah. what's, What's your portfolio look like right now? Like, what, what are you holding and where? Um, so it's a combination. Um, I've, been, I've been selling a few properties over the last year. Currently, I'm around 65 units. Uh, it's a combination of Hamilton, Windsor, bought a 22 unit in Cambridge with a few partners in January. Um, I actually have to update it. We bought a six unit motel last month with a partner out in um, just north of London. Um, and uh, under contract for an Aplex. So it may be, you know, by next month, it'd probably be in the 70, 75 range. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, in the States, yeah, it's, I'm involved in a number of different projects here. Uh, I just kind of shared something earlier this morning on my social media handle, um, you know, doing a lot of new construction over here. So that was another thing in terms of, the, you know, what, what asset classes am I investing in? What type of investments do I have to move forward in? In, because I'm a non-resident and just to, just to kind of ease of, of, you know, the type of investments, I've been doing a lot of partnerships. Um, that's one of the ways I've been able to continue to grow my portfolio in Canada. Uh, and like I said, this year alone, probably um, after next month, probably up to about, you know, 35, 40 units. Um, partnerships are great. You know, uh, if you if you know the people, if you trust them, you have a good relationship with them. I know a lot of people just kind of, I just want to buy on my own. That's great. But, you know, mm -hmm. for myself, um, it's been great to kind of continue building my portfolio, you know, completely, you know, not local and just kind of like, you know, almost offhand. And everyone brings a certain value to the team, um, depending on if it's, you know, sourcing the deal, the opportunity, um, you know, one of the deals, I'll do the cross collateralize one of my other assets to bring a better loan to value, whatever it is. So that's kind of like in Canada. 
in the California high price market, um, getting into new construction, you know, build to sell and also build to keep. And that's something, you know, this year I'm really venturing into. We just locked up uh, a four lot pro- pro- project. Uh, we're closing it next week and we're going to be building four homes and then selling them. Um, so we're looking at doing a combination of buy and build single family homes, buy and keep, I mean, sorry, build and keep more of apartment style projects. Um, so that's something that's going to be, you know, uh, starting from this year forward. We've got another number of you know, opportunities um, and deals in the pipeline. Um, so that can escalate quickly. Like some of the apartment deals alone are like 200 plus uh, deals. Um, so 200 plus we'll units? 200 plus units, yeah. Oh, okay. So you're not you're not playing small there. You're you're doing no. I, things yeah. are gonna escalate quite big over here. You know, things you know happen. It's just the process is a little slower, especially mm-hmm. entitlement and that sort of thing. Once we get through that part, um, like we've got several projects. The, the first one probably 216 units here in Southern California. We've got another project um, that's about another 270 units in Tucson, Arizona. So again, there's a number of things that we are working on. We either have under contract or we actually own, and you know, and, and we're in the process of uh, of building. Mm-hmm. Wow, you've got your hand in a lot of things. Now, do you find that these network, these connections you have, this is all due to your skill in networking? Uh, I know you're a realtor. Does that play in? Like, how how did you formulate these contacts? Yeah, I, I really preach networking. I think that's one of the biggest things as, you know, uh, as a, a newer investor or even someone who's been in this, in this business for a long time. I do everything through networking. Just in the last year, through all social media, you know, contacts, I'm able to find my partners, raise the capital, look and find the opportunities or disposition to opportunities. Um, it's just been amazing if you're able to understand and utilize social media and, you know, networking to your benefit prior to COVID avid networker, I was going out, you know, once a week minimum to events, a lot of these real estate, you know, uh, type of um, workshops where, you know, you gather to educate you or to kind of share kind of their story, mm-hmm. but then you're surrounded around other like-minded individuals. You meet, you exchange information, you stay in touch and opportunities come up from that. Um, and it's all about building relationships. So I really recommend and I, I promote people to network constantly. And that's what I do, you know, now, obviously, with the last year and a half with COVID, um, we've had to kind of transfer everything online. So even with these events, I mean, even with not being able to go physically, there's a lot of these Facebook groups and different way, different um, uh I guess, networks that, you know, you should be able to tap into and just make those contacts. And that's where I met several of my partners this year um, and able to raise the capital as well. Um, So, yeah, networking definitely is is a benefit. Here locally, um, you know, I I do have, you know, some advantage. Uh, My father-in-law has been a builder for 40 years. So through his contacts and people I've met through, you know, a lot of people he knows, um, they'll be able to formulate some some great you know opportunities, um, and a lot of them he's involved in being a builder understands you know entitlement and understands how to kind of get through the process. Every state, every province is different, so it's really important to understand you know what you're getting yourself involved in. But a lot of times, you know, constantly networking uh, through again through Facebook, uh, I was able to bring in someone, and and we're working closely as a partner, raising the capital for some of these projects. So again, network as much as possible. I just I'm totally all about that. 
Yeah. And I, I have to uh, agree. I think it's huge. It's, it's, it's something I never really took seriously until after I had had quite a bit of success with real estate investing. Like I had networked with, you know, a handful of mentors, but I never really branched out beyond that until more recent years. And like since starting the podcast, just the amount of connections, um, you know, you learn little bits and pieces from different people. Uh, in, in my case, I think the biggest advantage is if I ever have an ask, I've got a, a pretty big base of people that I could reach out to and, and, you know, I need to know this, you know, somebody, and you know, it's so quick that, um, that's, that's been huge, right. Just finding good contacts for lawyers or what have you. So, um, really, uh, really a big benefit, but what would you say to someone who is in the U S or even here and they want to learn about this development process? Cause you're getting into these, you know, start to finish, you talk about entitlement. Um, and that, that correct me if I'm wrong, is just the process of, of, of basically getting the land to ready to, uh, go for a permit. Is that true? Or yeah. Earlier than and, that? Yeah, it's true. And, you know, I look at it more like a project management, you know, you acquire a piece of property or you put it under contract. A lot of times what we do, we approach the landowner mm-hmm. and we tap the property with a long closing. And during that process, we take the risk of spending the money on entitling the land for mm-hmm. whatever we're trying to do. If it's like a subdivision or again, you know, just a few homes, and then, you know, once we have that approval, then close it. And now you increase the value of that, that asset, ultimately that land. Yeah. And now you can go to, a, you know, a lender that lends for new construction and get a loan and then, you know, and then and figure out that yeah. way. Um, in terms for someone new, you know, when I first moved here and I started understanding how this land development and entitlement works, it was it was an eye opener. It's not like any other asset class. Like some of these projects, they go on for years. You're dealing with different agencies, environmental agencies. You're dealing with uh, yeah. different cities. Each one's got their own, you know, way of, you know, run, uh, analyzing things and approving things. And it just, it's really, it ebbs and flows. There's no like hundred percent, like confirmed, you know, dates for anything. When you think that, oh, we're going to get approval at this date, but something else comes up, change this, change that. So, you know, for some, it's a high, in my opinion, it's a high risk, high reward type of, you know, asset yeah. class or, or avenue as an investor. If you're newer, I don't know if that's some, somewhere I really kind of focus a lot of attention on. Um, because like I said, you know, you buy a piece of land. I mean, it may take years before you get it approved for whatever you want to do. And money's going out. It's just what investment do you yeah. what investment class do you just constantly feed money like you're basically paying for this paying for that over the course of years with a hope and prayer that you're going to get it approved for something right and if it doesn't or the market turns like you could be done so yeah, there's no it's hard ahead. for most people to justify that right that's why most most people don't get into it right cuz it's like going to a casino but the odds are actually in your favor to win but if you don't, the cost is astronomical, like the loss is astronomical. So it, you have to find a way. And I've, I've constantly said on this show, when I've talked about it, I think the best way is when you own a piece of cash flowing real estate that has land attached to it, where you can use the cash flow from the property to, to uh, pay for the soft costs to, to figure out if you can do what you want to do on that extra land. And I'm working with a with a guy, one of my coaching students, and he's he's severed off a piece of land in Windsor next to his house, and he's right now just about to break ground on a new student rental uh, duplex. So that's an example of you know he was making great cash flow, and now all of a sudden he severed this off. So uh, his property is still worth the exact same. The lot's free to him minus the planning costs, and and he's ready to go. Um, you know those are the type of opportunities I think. About, 
I think make a lot of sense for a foot in the door into the development world. And then once you do that, then you start probably getting a little bit more savvy, knowing which risks are worth taking. But if you don't have a plan B, that's where it gets tricky. Like, do you feel like you have a plan B? Like, say you bought a piece of land and you're going through the entitlement process. Um, could you tell me what that looks like and what you would do if you got a no? Well, again, high risk. So it's almost if you go down this, I kind of diversify. So I'm not in one asset class, you know, 100%. So I've got my buy and hold assets that I've held for a number of years. Um, I've, I you know, do some wholesaling as well for some active income. Uh, and oh, but in terms of the land, you know, there's going to be a certain segment of my time, energy, and resources that I'm going to put into land development. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, some of them, uh, you know, I've been fortunate where you know, my father-in-law has has already started the process. We've had the property for a number of years, or we have you know a relationship with the owner. Um, like we just cut about a week ago, we tied up um, a property. Uh, that's um, five acres and we could potentially build like 120 units on. Mm-hmm. Now, again, one of those creative ways of, of dealing with the, with the seller was having a two-year escrow. So again, as I mentioned, you put a down payment, tied up for two years, you're not releasing a lot of capital. So that mitigates your risk that over the course of the first year, you're going to be you know working with the city for approvals. If you get a hard no, well, my risk is a deposit. Maybe I release some additional funds in between, but it wasn't like the million dollars that I have to be prepared to pay at close for that land to buy it. So you can back out if you don't if you don't uh, get your approvals. Yeah. Okay, exactly. So, so what would you be in for on your soft cost? So your deposit might so be let's, what? Let's, like, let's use this particular deal yeah. as an example. Sure. So so you list the property for one point three. We negotiate it. We put it under contract for just under one point one, but. You know, the location is great. It's about five acres in a prime spot. We did a similar project that we're in the process of selling to a merchant builder builder currently down the street. So we're familiar with that city, the area. But the way we negotiated with the sellers, we're like, all right, we'll give you one point, just under 1.1, but we need one year to close with an option to, to extend it one more year. Mm-hmm. Now with land, you know, for it's one of those unique type of asset class where it's like, all right, you're not going to have buyers lining up even in a hot market. Um, we put twenty five thousand dollars to open escrow, and we get sixty days to do due diligence, and then once we firm, if we go firm, we actually release that twenty five thousand dollars to the sellers. It's applicable to the purchase price, but they get some capital initially. So for them, like, all right, that's nice. And then what we did was every quarter, we're going to release them another $10,000. Okay. So for them, this land ends up kind of becoming a little bit of a rental property. They're getting some income off of it. For us, our all-in is probably about, you know, 60, 70 grand. So if in a year's time, you know, we're ready to close, great. If not, and we need an extension, it's only going to cost us, I think the extension we negotiated was about uh, another $20,000. But then you'd be still every quarter giving them another, what, 10 grand, you said? Correct. So in a worst case scenario, you go two years, how much money have you paid? I think 150 is is out of pocket max. Okay, so 150,000 covers everything to figure out whether or not you can develop this property. Correct, but you would know way in advance. So you're gonna have some, some indications probably in the first 
two months, you're going to know whether they're biting or not. Yeah, you're going to know your first submission, um, what the city's appetite is. Uh, And, you know, obviously, if the land is zoned correctly, you already know you can do something with this property. Now, Mm -hmm. it's just a matter of like, okay, what can we do? You know, we're trying to go for the maximum. If it's 125 units, the city may come back and say, no, you can't do that there. Maybe we'll give you 70 units, 80 units, 50, whatever it ends up being. But that's a process, a lot of back and forth. But at the same time, as you know, as we move forward, we also have to make a determination if it makes sense to proceed. If it ends up being like you can only get so many units and the combination you know, of the land plus the cost to build, is it worth it? Maybe, maybe not. And then you just pull the plug and you cancel the, uh, cancel the deal at that point. Okay, so you're not typically going to spend 150 to figure that out. You're you're probably going to be able to have spent like maybe 50,000 and you'll know if you need to pull the plug. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Now, what I'm sharing here is not it's not every deal. There are some yeah. deals that you have to close. So, if you're that's hard, to close. hard cash to close on the property like, you know, a million dollars or you're going to get some sort of land loan that there are some lenders that lend on land, maybe like 50% loan to value. So you're basically dropping $500,000 to acquire this property with some financing. Yeah. I mean, that that's at times, you know, you have to do that as well. Yeah. So you really need to know and understand to really get involved in this um, particular, you know, segment of real estate. Yeah. Uh, but the rewards can be significant because once you get, you know, property approved um, for, you know, for a subdivision, for an apartment, you've increased the value, you know, three, maybe four times. So, so for instance, this one at 1.1 plus your, you know, plus whatever, maybe your soft costs are like 60, 70,000 on top. So you're almost for 1.2. If you were to buy that and that's, that's now entitled, meaning that it can be used for the 160 townhouses or whatever you have planned. If that's the case, what's the value now of that land? Yeah, it, obviously it's it's subjective, but you know, in the worst case scenario, if we're able to get like a hundred plus units, you're talking about just a land alone approved, probably three million. So you're easily yeah. doubling, potentially sure. tripling. You know, so okay, that's kind of like the model you want to be able to to do, or you know, or else what's what's the point of doing all uh, extending all this risk yeah. for what reason? Yeah, it's all risk reward, right? If if you're so, I mean, the way I would look at it is, you know, what. If I want to take one shot a year or two shots a year, and I know that I'm risking $50,000 a piece to like know whether I'm going to be able to move forward on them, you know, where am I going to generate the money to cover those losses for the ones that are losses? Right. You know, how do I fund that and be okay risking that amount of money? So if, you're, if your greater uh, real estate system allows for that, I think the eventual, you know, when you hit, when you strike gold, it's worth so much money that it, right. it worth, it makes it worth just having that always as part of your portfolio, always trying to develop some stuff. And I've seen that a lot. My mother-in-law develops a lot of stuff and she doesn't always know, but she follows the process through and, you know, doesn't win on all of them, but definitely right. is, you know, finds a way to do something. And, uh, even if she doesn't get, you know, doesn't get a hundred, maybe she gets 80 units or something like that. But, uh, man the way the, the values have been going here it's been very profitable for her right. and, and then uh, also Andrew, you have the option once it's approved that you can just sell it to a builder yeah so you can go all the way through and build it yourself or you yeah. say well i got something now that's tripled in value i could just sell yeah. it now to a builder they just want to go vertical and you walk away you're done um, yeah like you, you could just take your profit through. oh yeah take the profits on the table yeah. cash it in or you mm-hmm. can go all the way through and say well actually we want to build this thing because 
you know, the, just there's so much meat in the bone. If we were to go all, all the way through that, you yeah. know, we can, you know, another, another three, 4 million, whatever it is. But I mean, the question I come back to with that is what's my business? Am I a developer? Or am I a builder? Like those are different things. And yes. if you wanted to just be the builder, why not go find somebody else that already got the land entitled and you can just go ahead Correct. and build it. Um, I've noticed that the developers, when they price these things, they price them pretty aggressively. Like when they try and sell them, like it, there isn't a lot of meat on the bone for me as a builder if I wanted to do that. But right. I mean, of course, those are the ones that hit the market. I mean, there's probably so many that trade hands through you know agents privately and through people privately directly with each other. Um, mm-hmm. So if you wanted to sell a site like that, would you approach like a CBRE uh, here in Ontario or you know an, we an may, equivalent? Uh, we have relationship with builders. You just go direct. I would just you go know, straight to builders and just say, go straight to builders. Say, we've yeah. got an approved property in this area. You're building like, you know, 10 miles away. It is something you consider, you know, and there's just land acquisition, you know, departments that we just approach. Some we already have relationships with. And it's just, mm-hmm. a, you know, pick up the phone and say, listen, is this something that's up your wheelhouse? What's your yeah. appetite like? And, uh, and and see if it's something that, you know, they'd, they'd be interested to build. Some of them have a threshold. Well, if it's not 50 units or over, we're not interested. Um, but there are even smaller builders that you know, could potentially uh, sure. approach. Yeah, absolutely. So, what's your what's your feeling on uh, on this? Are you going to keep it? Or are you going to sell it? What what are you what are you planning for this one? That's a good question. Um, I think it comes down to you know what 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 are we able to get? You know, it's kind of the question mark initially. We have an anticipation of what we're thinking we can we can get this property entitled for. But you just don't know until you go through, you know, a few steps and then you get the feedback. And finally, it's like, all right, you can, in fact, get we won't we will only allow this many units. And then it comes to the point. Well, is it does it make sense for us to keep it mm-hmm. or to build it? You know, it, you know, it's hard to justify in the beginning. You know, this particular piece of property, it's just so new. Other ones, you know, are further along. And I you know another factor, Andrew, is, you know, your cash position. If you've got too many projects on the go. And they could be all good to keep, but at some point it may be beneficial to sell, replenish your cash cash position to be able to move forward with a few projects. So, you know, balance is key. Uh, and it's yeah. something that, you know, as investors, we've got constantly look at, you know, and, and, and even if you're look, just doing a just straight buy and hold investor, well, where do you want to put your money into? You can do, you know, four deals. Well, then yeah. what? You know, then, and then you're stuck until you raise capital or, or whatnot. So, you kind of be mindful of that, you know, like how many deals, how many projects yeah. you have in the go and just be strategic with it. Um, and you can yeah. do in combination, you know, maybe you do three sell, one build, you know, those, you know, different yeah. scenario. That's my thought too. I, I just, I don't know if I told you this, but I tied up uh, five lots in Florida. So I'll, okay. you know, I'm looking to, you know, probably build, build a, you know, two, three at a time and then just keep acquiring lots and keep that going. And then, you know, sell one, keep one, um, or sell to keep ones, whatever is needed to kind of drive that the right amount of active income, and then also exactly. building the portfolio. Um, and not a not a bad place to own some property with uh, all the sunshine. Can't right, about right. That. You know, one more thing I want to since we're on this topic of entitlement yeah. um, and, and new construction. Um, one thing I, I should say I should say is that entitlement your operations are much smaller than than construction. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, as, an, as you know, our operation, whenever we, we were looking just straight entitlement, you probably entitlement, you probably only need like two, three individuals, you know, whereas yeah. and for new, you know, for construction, you need an entire team, you know, and yeah. is that going to be an entire 
are these people going to be on your payroll? Are you going to sub it out? Like these are all considerations to, you know, you have to kind of factor in. It's a different a business. Of, it's a sure. different business altogether. Yeah. You know, you could have a small operation doing the entitlement, whereas the construction yeah. is a totally different avenue. Yeah, you'd be um, working with, for clarification, you'd be working with urban planners, engineers, um, yes. you know, consultants, yes. people who are yep. going to do traffic studies, heritage studies, any kind yes. of study the municipality requires. Similar requirements here in, in Canada, like if you're developing here, I'm sure that, you know, it's 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 different, of course, but there's a lot of similarities in, in how they're uh, requesting. Here, environment, our environmental is huge in California. Yeah. Um, you have, you know, you, you've had properties which has like a rare rat or a mosquito. Yeah. So you have to do specific studies on it. And those studies may only be done, may only, you may only be able to do those studies once or twice a year when it's like mating yeah. season. So these are things that you don't even think about until you're involved yeah. in a project. Oh, at this area? Oh, well, this is, yeah. you know, this particular thing is happening. And you're like, all right, so now you've got to kind of mitigate for that, rearrange your, your, your schedule and say, okay, we're kind of on hold until we're able to do that, you know, that particular right. thing. Yeah. Yeah. You got to know. And you won't know until you have that initial consultation. They tell you, here's the laundry list of things we would want if you want to develop here. Yeah. That's where you get a lot of clarity. And then I think also from a buyer's perspective, if somebody's looking to buy, you could sell before you have entitlement. If you can show what the city is saying, how they feel about it, what they've, you know, what they've commented, Um, there is some value, although no guarantees, but From what I've heard, it, it seems like it's relatively rare that the city changes their um, their requirements midway. Like if they tell you that this is what they want from the beginning, they might clarify. But I, I haven't heard too many people say that they've done like a 180 and changed their mind. Right. It may have to be something extraordinary. At the end of the day, usually it just gets things get pushed further down, not necessarily because they're changing their mind, but things come up. Right. And, you know, and, and it's just surprised sometimes based on the engineering, based on, you know, the different personnel change in the city that also kind of has an effect on a project. Right. So you have a personnel change and all of a sudden someone brings in a, you know, a different set of eyes and they may have some additional requirements that you have to do. So anyways, it's something to kind of factor in. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's no guarantees, right? Never are. You got you to gotta be willing to take at least some risk in this business. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, it's super interesting. We don't often get into development on this show at this level because it's uh, it's um, not that many people are doing it. But right. um, what's your typical structure here? Are you are are you typically the money partner, or are you coming in doing a little money, a little expertise, or you know how does that work for the enti- for the entitlement specifically? Yeah. So usually I'm more on the active side. So we you know I'm bringing in or I'm raising some capital. Like right now we're in a process. We've got we're under contract for a project of 64 acres. Mm-hmm. So I'm actively looking for investors. So having meetings, taking them on the on the site, walking them through, kind of like showing the big picture, what's involved, uh, talking to different lenders, and just kind of putting all the pieces in place. So if we've got a certain amount of capital, then the financing will be able to come in. Is there, you know, is the financing gonna be able to come in all at one time? Or is there intervals? And that's the challenge. Like lenders don't necessarily want to lend on just raw land. Right. Um, so you have the land acquisition and you have the horizontal work, which, you know, depending on the size of the project can go on for months, if not a year, until you're at the point where you can go vertical, meaning you can actually build. You know, and that could right. be that could be a year away. Um, so the traditional lenders all we'll, we'll give you a construction loan. Okay, well, how do you get to that point? depending on the size of the project, that could be millions of dollars, yeah. right? 
Yeah, so you got to have the pockets for it. You got you to right. be able to fund. Yeah, the lots I just bought, I'm buying them all cash. But yeah, you could probably get like 50% loan on them, but you know, that's going to be expensive too and not yeah. ideal. Right. So, so yeah. that's where these you know networking and these relationships um, come to play. And a lot of times, you know, it's just you meet a lot of interesting people when you're out there connecting. Um, sat down yesterday with someone that's like in the music industry and it's got deep, you know, network of people in that industry. You know, there's money in that industry. He's able to potentially bring in the money that we may require for development. That's one segment. Another one is, uh, you know, another investor, um, deep pockets. You know, he's also in real estate and, you know, he's interested as well. So again, without going too much detail. You're bringing people together. So is it you? So on the active partner side, is it just you or are you working with somebody else as well? There's two of us right now on this on this side and neither then, of you guys are the finance guys you guys are the are the active finance, guys exactly yeah um, okay. then once a project under contract then we may kind of switch roles and become sure. more in terms of management and kind of getting different you know yeah. different people involved to actually push the project forward mm-hmm. yeah and then the great part is that you know i've got my farm-in-law who's got the deep experience a lot of right. times when you're working with sizable projects they want to know like well this is not like building one house. Like you know, you're, we're, we're building either a community, a community, a subdivision, you know, a, a large project. You know, it could be apartments and that whatnot. So having someone that has the experience and the level of sophistication who understands that, you know, on board is super important because mm-hmm. even if you know, number one to confirm that you're able to do it, the credibility is there, um, and also for the financing, you're gonna want to know like, well, you know, what have you done? So on a similar scale, when you're going to go with financing as a flipper, you know, an investor going to flip, but what have you done? Have you ever done this before? Well, I've never flipped yeah. before. Well, it gets a little more challenging, but if you're able to prove I've done three, four flips in the past year, oh, no problem. You know, run them yeah. through the scenario, show them that you made money and, you know, it's much easier to get the financing. So this is yeah. kind of similar to a larger scale. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So, so primarily for the, uh, for the lenders that you, you're going to want to be able to show them experience. Is that true? Does the city care as well when you're getting into these larger projects? Well, the relationship with the cities matter. That will, yeah, so, but not specifically know, outlined that they want that. Yeah, and what the thing I find with the actual execution of of like say servicing or preparing a, you know lots for to be able to be sold is they want an engineering consultant to certify everything anyway. So you're not really the guy that's that's overseeing exactly. it. Yeah, yeah, so that's that's nice. Like I, I love being that guy at the top. Just pull the strings and let everybody else do the work. Yeah. No, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Um, and that's kind of like where I'm spending more and more of my time uh, because the potential is there. You know, at the end of the day, you do one project, you know, in, in one year, I mean, it could be significant return if you're able to yeah. execute it correctly. Yeah, absolutely. Like if you were to build this all the way out, hire a builder on the one you, you talked to me about, yeah. could there be 5 million profit there? 10 million? Oh, yeah, yeah. At yeah. that level, exactly. Yeah. So that's where you really start to feel like you're winning. Now, your investors, are they? Are you like syndicating a group of investors together that are going to take 50% of the project? Is that how that works or something Usually. like that? So not yeah. a pure syndication, more like a JV. Um, okay. You know, so you might have a, a few though? You might have a few, a few investors. Yeah, and yeah. that's the thing. At this level, sometimes only one or two individuals. Yeah, you know, they may raise it through their network, but really okay. only bringing in one or two individuals. Okay. Um, you know, because again, because it's so much capital, 
you know, we're at that point where you want to bring in like 100 people or 50 people. It just gets too yeah. confusing. Yeah, that, that's too much to manage, just the relationships yeah. with them, right? You want, exactly. We want to keep it simple. If you're, able, if you're able to bring in one or two individuals, if it's their own capital they're bringing in or through their network, fine. Uh, they raise it individually. Uh, but for us, it's just easier to manage, easier to move forward and create the structure. Um, and yeah, usually for the money, they're going to want, you know, 50%. Um, so that's kind of an important factor that you have to consider, like what, what's your, what's your percentage that you're left with? You know, if you have, if you've got the banks involved on the loan and you bring in a partner for the capital, you know, the difference, whatever it is, 20%, 10%, whatever that is, well, what are you going to leave for yourself? So it's going to make right. sense as well, as big of a project it is, because really the reward is at the end, yeah. you know, you're doing all this for that piece of pie at the very end. And it could be worth it though. You have enough of those going on all of a sudden in five, 10 years, you find yourself extremely wealthy uh, with all these projects coming to fruition. So it's, it is a bit of a waiting game, but it's, it's, that's why it's got the big payoff because so few are willing to one, take the risk, go through the work and effort and wait. And, and uh, yeah, it it can definitely pay big, but I'm sure it could hurt too. If you, if you get into something where they, the city's not on board, so you got to know what you're doing. Um, yeah. So anyone, I would say like, go find somebody doing it and see if the, if they'll let you work for them, see if they'll, they'll let you shadow them in some way so that you can learn from an expert rather than trying this on your own. Because I think it is probably too much for the average person. I agree hundred percent. Um, but the, the, the challenge is finding someone, um, because in terms of like just the plethora of investors out there, not that many are doing, you know, this kind of work, land development, Mm -hmm. Um, so it definitely, if you know someone yeah. who's doing it, yeah, get involved, at least be kind of behind the scenes, just kind of yeah. tag along a bit and understand it. Or go work for a company that does it on a larger scale. You mean like yeah. you learn so much, you know, it's, it's going to be a, com- com- a combination of a few things, most likely for most people, uh, learn, learn it, maybe how a big company does it and then learn how the smaller guys do it and, and then figure out where you, where you fit. Um, yeah. Okay, so Thomas, it's been really nice talking to you. If people wanted to reach you or follow your journey, where should we send them? Instagram, my handle is Thomas underscore Lorini number one. Okay. Um, and also, um, I have a website, thomaslorini.com. And I also have a Facebook group uh, called the Real Estate Wealth Academy. I created that about a year and a half ago. And basically, it's just educating people on real estate investing, kind of sharing my journey of what I'm doing currently. So I would say those are kind of three main places to find me. Okay. Well, I think you've shared those links with me, so I'll put those in the show notes. Okay. So uh, any parting words of wisdom you'd like to share before we wrap up? Um, I think it's important, like why you do everything. Um, A lot of times people are investing in real estate, you know, but why do you do what you do? I think it's an important question. Um, And for myself, you know, it's my family, my faith, friends, and giving value to other people, other investors that people want to give. Uh, I mean, educating and just kind of giving back to the community. So I think that's one thing you need to answer yourself if, you know, especially if you're new or like, why are we doing this? Mm -hmm. Uh, So kind of sit down and just think about that and not just make it like it's a de facto thing. Well, I'm doing it. I don't really know, really don't really know why I'm doing or where I'm going. So kind of formulate, you know, that and really come to terms because once you understand that, it'll just kind of have Mm -hmm. a sense of fulfillment. Um, so yeah. if I'm doing it for my family or to help other people, I mean, that's a sense of fulfillment. So just want to impart that on you know the audience, uh, because yeah. sometimes it's, it's, it sounds great. I'm getting so much cash flow or, you know, I sold property and netted a hundred thousand dollars. Okay, great. 
But if it's just for that, you know, that win or just for the, for the money itself, I mean, it's just mm -hmm. it's, the fulfillment is not going to last. I think it yeah. needs to be a deeper level. So if anything, just kind of consider that. Why do you want to invest in real estate or why do you want to do it? Um, and, uh, and why do you, you know what, what's important for you? So just, you know, those are kind of my parting words. Yeah. You got to find your, got to find your why. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. If you're going to stick to something, you got to be convicted in it. Otherwise, you know, they say you don't stand for anything. You fall for anything. So don't stand for something or you'll fall for anything. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think it, it applies to investing too. If, if you don't know why you're doing it, if you're not clear on that, a lot of people won't stick with it. Of yeah. course, a lot of, you know, they'll get a taste of how good it is and they'll be like, oh, that's why. Because <laughs> this creates freedom. I can do, you know, I can, right. I can do what I want in my life. So uh, I hear that one come back a lot. People just want to be free to do what they want to do. So, okay. Well, I really appreciate this, Thomas. It was, uh, it was great finally connecting with you and hearing oh, your story. Uh, it sounds you. like you're a very busy guy and uh, I'm sure everybody listening to this is, uh, has enjoyed this experience. Well, thank you for having me, Andrew. Appreciate being here and wish you all the best. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. Please make sure to share this episode far and wide. Help it help more people. I really appreciate you tuning in. Thanks. I'll see you on the next one. <laughs>